um, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we'll be looking, we'll be considering uh, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when Sin is fully mature, matured, it, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Have you ever blamed someone for your own offenses? Like most of you, I am, a, I am an expert at blaming others for my own faults. I am so good that I can even blame inanimate objects in order to, to protect myself. Things that aren't living are the best things to blame because they can't defend themselves. I remember in my late teens when I was learning how to drive a stick shift car, and uh, I was there at a traffic uh, stoplight that had just uh, turned green, and unfortunately for the Six cars behind me, I was having trouble getting out of first gear. And I kept stalling, and I kept stalling, and I kept stalling, and, and I, was, uh, uh, <laughs> I was getting frustrated, and, and uh, it went from red to green to red, and I'm still there, and there's six cars honking their horns, <laughs> thinking to themselves, what is wrong with this guy? And, of course, at this point, I, I turned to my mother, it was getting kind of frustrated, and I said, there is something wrong with this car. <laughs> There's something that the stick shift isn't working. Couldn't be my fault. So quickly, she got out of the passenger side, and we switched, switched situations and switched uh, uh, seats, and she got on the driver's side, and soon enough, as the green light appeared, off we went. The car suddenly started working again. And of course, my response was a sheepish, Oh, oh, okay, well, I guess the car is, is working fine. Um, there was another time when my, my, my years ago uh, when I was at home and my, my mother made a large uh, bowl of dumplings on, on the table and I, and I took a bite out, I took one dumpling and, I, and uh, all of a sudden this, 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 this uh, stream of, of dumpling juice kind of squirted out. And it was kind of embarrassing Mother gave me a look. And then I finally ate the first dumpling. I took another second dumpling, and again, the, a stream of dumpling juice kind of just squirted out. And I was like, okay, this is kind of weird. So the third dumpling, I tried extra hard for not, not, not that not to happen. And again, a third time, another stream of dumpling juice just came out, squirted out. And I, to the point, I looked at my mother again. I said, there is something wrong with these dumplings. To which my mother took one real quick, took a bite. Nothing came out. Again, my response was a sheepish O. Oh. You see, when it comes to justifying ourselves, when it comes to protecting ourselves, our egos and 
or, or our pride. There is no end to which we will not go in deceiving ourselves when things go wrong. We blame cars, we blame dumplings, we blame co-workers and politicians, we blame our parents, we blame our husbands and our wives, we, we blame our children even, and most pathetic of all, sinners blame a perfect and holy God. The central theme of the letter of, of James, as I've made clear these past couple of weeks, is this, a wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 18, James has laid forth the foundation for the pursuit of this wholehearted Christianity. So far, we've, we've, we've considered how God uses trials to produce a full-orbed spiritual maturity, and therefore we are to consider it all joy when trials come our way. But make sure that we, when we do that, we, we endure the trial with wisdom ask from this generous God. And we must ask with faith and ask with a heart of spiritual integrity and an inner spirit of consistency. And he will give us the wisdom that we need to endure trials, trials especially like poverty and wealth. That's what we covered the last two Sundays. In verses 12 through 18 this morning, James now highlights the, the importance of having a clear understanding of who God is. If you want a wholehearted Christianity, if you want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, if you want a pure heart, if you want to be a mature believer, we must make certain that we understand rightly who God is. We must make it a priority to have settled convictions about God's nature and character, especially in a trial. We are not to be double-minded about who God is and our understanding of him. We're not to be like waves of an ocean going back and forth about, about the nature and character of God. We must know him. We must trust him. And we must never waver in that knowledge. In other words, what makes a believer a mature Christian is that even in trials, there must be a settled understanding. There must be an experiential knowledge and there must be a fervent trust in a God who is always good. The author of the letter of James is James, the half-brother of Jesus, of course. And for most Christians today, James doesn't get the kind of respect that the Apostle Paul in letters like Romans or Galatians gets. So it's important that we correct this unwarranted lack of appreciation for James and James's inspired contribution to the New Testament. An argument has been made, an argument that I believe, is that James was not just one of the leaders of the early church, but in fact that James was the leader of the early church. In other words, let's say a stranger arrived in Jerusalem or in Antioch between the years of AD 40 through 62 and asked the question, who's the person in charge of this movement called Christianity, any knowledgeable Christian, including Peter, John, or Paul, would have answered without hesitation, James. Why do scholars contend for this understanding of James's lofty position? Well, there's biblical evidence to support that. When Paul and Barnabas visited Jerusalem, as described in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, the text says that they, that they met with three pillars of the church, and this is the order of the names recorded. James, Peter, and John. James is conspicuously in first in order. When Peter is released from prison in Acts 12, Luke writes that when Peter arrived at the door of those praying for him, 
Peter explicitly said this, report these things to James and his brothers. In Acts 15, in the controversy about whether Gentiles should be circumcised or not, it is James alone, with the support of the church, in chapter 15, verse 19, who makes the final decision. When Paul returns to Jerusalem in Acts 21, right before he's assaulted by the Jews and appears in, in, in multiple trials before all the Roman authorities, Acts 21.18 says that Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Clement of, Clement of Alexandria records a tradition that the risen Jesus had actually appointed James to be the leader of the apostles, something you've affirmed by Eusebius and Jerome. And prominent New Testament scholar Paul Barnett says it this way, in Jerusalem 49 AD, James appears to have been the world head of Christianity. And so therefore, it is, it is not a coincidence or some random accident that James is the first New Testament letter, letter written to the church. James's prominence in the early church and the importance of his New Testament letter likely contributes to the fact that for the first thousand years of church history, the canonical order of the New Testament was for the most part the Gospels, the book of Acts, and then it was the letter of James. The Eastern Orthodox Church still maintains this order in their Bibles. And I, and I bring all of this up about James to add a bit of octane fuel for our study of this letter. James, the leader of the early church, should not be marginalized in any way, and James, the inspired letter of the New Testament, should not be marginalized either. And so this pillar of the church continues to lay down a foundation for a wholehearted Christianity in chapter 1 by warning us of adopting an erroneous conception of who God is and reminding us of an accurate view of God's character when trials attempt to convince us otherwise. And I have two points for you this morning. Number one, uh, uh, to avoid the wrong view of God in trials, verses 12 through 15. And number two, embrace the right view of God in trials, verses 16 through 18. Chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, and chapter 1, verse 16 through 18 are two separate units of thought presenting two complementary sides of a single topic, and we're going to consider that first, that first unit. Number one, avoid the wrong view of God in trials. Oftentimes in a trial, our faith in God weakens and falters because we entertain false notions about God and ourselves. Everything can turn upside down in a trial, and, and we deceive ourselves by, uh, by justifying our own sinfulness and, 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 and impugning God's perfect character. Trials often bring a fog of deception, blinding our ability to see ourselves in God clearly. And so James begins this first section in verse 12 by returning to the opening topic of chapter 1, which was, which was trials. In the beginning of chapter 1, James exhorted Christians to respond to trials with joy because such a testing of their faith produces perseverance. And now in verse 12, he promises a reward for those who, success, who successfully persevere in trials by remaining firm in the testing. At the same time, verse 12 introduces the theme that will dominate verses 13 through 15 
which contrasts trials with temptations. James begins verse 12 with the word blessed, blessed. And the term and theology of this word blessed was first introduced to us in Genesis. After God created Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 said, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Then in chapter 2, Moses says that God blessed the seventh day. And this theology of blessedness grows and grows in Exodus and then in, and then in Leviticus and Numbers and then in, until it culminates in Deuteronomy when, when Moses climbs Mount Sinai and he gives the law to Israel and then he says over and over again, blessed if you obey this law, blessed if you obey this law, blessed if you obey this law. And then he says on the flip side, cursed are, cursed are you if you disobey. And the rest of the Old Testament, of course, records the curse of God on Israel for the obvious. But next to Israel's disobedience, you still have the promise of blessing. Uh, Psalm 1-1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. But God's people, as we see in the Old Testament, they cannot obey the law. They cannot be blessed. So they need a, a new heart promise in the new covenant. And so then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he climbs a mountain in Matthew chapter 5 and he starts his great sermon by saying over and over, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the persecuted. And, and Jesus is saying that he is here to give new hearts that can obey God's word so that we can receive God's blessing promised to Adam in the garden. James here in verse 12 summarizes all of that theology of blessedness, especially the beatitudes of blessing Jesus gives on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, no other book in the New Testament paraphrases the words of Jesus like James does. James has rightly been described as the fifth gospel. Verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This idea of blessed is not so much an emotion or feeling happy as it is an objective state, an objective state of a person before God. The word isn't describing how we feel as much as it is describing the acceptance we have in Christ. We are accepted because of Christ. And James, he writes of our final culmination of this blessing. He says, blessing is the one who has persevered under trial and has been accepted into heaven when every spiritual blessing in Christ is fully fulfilled and realized. He says this, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once he has been reproved. There's the, there's the moment. The moment of approval. And that word approved is, is the same word found in chapter 1, verse 3, translated testing. And if you remember, that term contained the picture of precious metal in a forge or in a crucible. Your, your faith is like gold or silver being hammered away by trials, not to break you, but to strengthen you and to produce glorious, godly character. 
See, if you persevere in all the, all the kinds of various trials that bombard our lives, uh, you, if you can persevere to the end, you come out approved. You come out of that like a fine piece of jewelry. And you may, at your, when you're 70 or 80, you might not look like much, but in God's eyes, when he looks at your character, when he looks at your faith, he sees a precious piece of jewelry. And then you're finally perfected in heaven. The road to heaven is filled with all the, the, the various trials of life. And when you persevere, when you patiently endure all of that and come out approved, James says in verse 12, he will receive the crown of life. The crown of life. And the imagery James may have in mind for this crown is the image that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul talks about a race. And Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a corruptible crown. There you go. But we an incorruptible. And this, this image is the image of kind of a Greco-Roman world of a crown where it would be the, a, a laurel wreath given to victors in a, in a, in a, in a race or in, in some sort of athletic contest. But James is not talking about a, a literal crown. The words, the two words, the, of life that follow the word, a crown is a genitive of apposition, which basically means that this, these two words of life are, are explaining what the crown is, that the crown it, it consists of eternal life. That's the crown, eternal life. And yes, we have eternal life now in Christ, but when you receive the crown of life in the, in the future, we receive the final and full endowment of all that e eternal life is. Every spiritual good that we have presently weighed down, however, by our suffering and sin becomes a, a spiritual perfection multiplied to the nth degree in a new world without the tears of trial and without the guilt of our sin. And yet this reward of heaven is a reward that only a true believer is able to appreciate. You see, only a true believer has the ability to be motivated by this reward of the crown of life. Non-believers cannot be motivated by heaven because they do not really believe in heaven. The unbeliever will do everything in his or her power to avoid the trial because they cannot look farther than 5, 10, perhaps even 20 years ahead, and they plan what they think will benefit them the most based on that timetable. But not so the, the wholehearted believer. The wholehearted believer in the trial sets his or her sights beyond the grave into, into eternity where, where his uh, humble circumstances will turn into the full experience and enjoyment of his high position, James mentioned in verse 9. And as I said earlier, verse 12 is a hinge verse. It's a transitory verse. It, it completes the content of verses 2 through, 2, 2 through 11, and it introduces the theme that will comprise verses 13 through 15, the, the contrast of trials and temptations. That there is a difference between trials and temptations. God brings trials in our lives, no doubt about that. He promises blessing to those who endure trials. But every trial 
Every external difficulty often carries with it greater temptation to sin. Every trouble often brings with it more inner enticement to transgress God's commands. But James insists now that, that while God is bringing trials, he is not the author of temptation. That enticement to sin comes from our, from our own sinful natures, not from God. Listen to verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Trials often bring greater enticements to sin. And we fight sin in our lives by turning to Christ, by drawing near to God for grace, by attending church, by fellowshipping, by worshiping with the saints, by listening to the word of God preach through private prayer and devotions. But, but trials often cause us to turn away from all of that. Trials often uh, cause us to, to turn away from the one who can give us the power to resist and mortify our sin. And what's worse is, is, is when we think, as we turn away from Christ in our trials, that these greater, uh, subsequent greater degrees of temptation come from God. We, we erroneously, we erroneously think that, well, if God has brought on this trial, then he has also brought these temptations to sin as well. And so, we then often give in to these many temptations to sin. And then, and we absolve ourselves of our, our personal responsibility to fight and mortify this temptation to sin in our trials. And it is, it is very easy in those situations to fall headlong into a cesspool of transgressions. And then the natural consequences of that and God's chastening hand enter the picture. And now you're multiplying trial times sin, times consequences, and you have this snowball effect of full-blown chaos in your life. And then when all that happens, we not only sinfully blame God for the trials, we also blame Him for our response to the trials, for all the all of the sin that we do and all the, the consequences that result. And so James writes verses 13 through 18 to convey this. When trials come, beloved... Don't sin. Don't jump headlong into sin. But turn to the one who can help you in your trials. And, and in order to do this, James must remind us of how sinful we are and how good God is. Because trials deceive us into thinking the opposite. Trials deceive us into thinking that we're the righteous ones. And God is the evil party. James says here, no, no, no. Make sure you never forget that you're always the evil one and God is always the perfect God of goodness. And that is still true. Even the worst kind of trial that you're going through, even when it doesn't feel like it, you and me, we're always the evil ones. We're always the bad guy and God is always the good one. And so we must run to Him in our, in our troubles. And so in verse 13, James begins with a statement of God's impeccable character. He says, listen, 
When you're, when you're being tempted to sin, don't ever say, don't ever say, I am being tempted by God. Because God cannot be tempted by evil. That, that phrase, cannot be tempted, is one word in the Greek. It is to say that God is untemptable. There is nothing in his character that makes him succumb to even the slightest appealing tug in the heart of God. Uh, uh, evil is repugnant and abhorrent to him. And because this is so, he cannot be tempting others to evil. Since there is nothing in his character that makes him susceptible to temptation, there is nothing in his character that would make him tempt anyone else to sin. That is a moral impossibility. Because if you truly hate something, you would never do anything to support what you hate. Let's say you have a really bad airline experience and you come out of United Airlines thinking, man, these guys are the worst. I can't stand them. And you post on your Facebook page, I hate United Airlines. Right? And then you tell everybody how horrible the airlines is so that they will what? They will, they will choose another airlines. You don't say, well, hey, you, you think you want to take this airlines if you hate the airlines? You don't want to support what you hate. And likewise, there is nothing more in the universe that God hates than sin. When, when we first sinned, God, God hated sin so much, he, he unleashed thousands of years of this wrath against sin. God hates sin so much that in order to forgive us, he sent his son to, to die for that sin, to be punished for that sin. God hates sin so much, he says over and over, do not sin. He, he, he hates sin so much that in the end, he throws sin and Satan into a lake of fire forever. So if he has that kind of repugnance and hatred towards sin, he would therefore never, ever tempt anyone to sin. That temptation to sin comes from somewhere else. God is not the author of that. God has no part in that. You are the author of your own sin. So James writes 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15, to humble us. He writes these verses to cause us to, to turn to God in our trials. And he writes these verses to help us understand ourselves and, and to teach us how we can, we can put off our sin. What does he want us to know in verses 14 and 15? He wants us to know first in verse 14 that sin originate from our own hearts. That sin comes from within, within inside of ourselves. But where exactly inside of us does sin come from? Where inside of us does this, does the, does the lust of sin or the desire for something evil, where does it come from? Does it come from the Holy Spirit and dwelling within us? Of course not. Of course not. Does it come from our hearts, our new hearts, given by the new covenant? No way. You have a new heart, remember? So where does sin come from? Sin comes from the law of sin in your heart. The law of sin. The, the Bible calls it, calls it also the flesh. It is a sin principle. It is a sin dynamic still remaining in our hearts that produces the temptation to sin that produces the desire to sin that produces sin itself. 
You see, before God saved you, all of our hearts were enslaved to the sinfulness of sin. We could do nothing but obey its, its desires, its, its will, its, its, its direction. Everything we did was controlled by sin. But then we heard the gospel. We were freed from that slavery. We believed in Christ and we received a new heart indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit. Now in Christ, every believer, every believer's basic disposition, every the, the, the basic disposition of our heart is summarized really well by Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. This is the, the basic orientation of, of, a, of a believer's heart. Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on. See, that's the heart. That's the new heart. The new heart is always pressing on that I, that I may hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ, Jesus. Brothers, I, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it, of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's what the heart, that, that is what the, the basic disposition of a believer's heart. It's, it's, it's constantly reaching forward to what lies ahead. Then Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The new heart of a believer, there's this, there's this constant desire to press on for the, for the goal of Christ, for heaven. This is the basic orientation of the new heart the believer possesses in Christ. The grace is the king of a believer's heart. Grace reigns as sovereign in the heart of a Christian. We, there is this desire to be more holy. There is this desire to be more Christ-like. We want to be more patient. We want to be more loving and more kind. That, that is grace working in the heart. Uh, Paul calls that the law of the mind in Romans 7. That's, that, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. But what keeps us from getting there, uh, what keeps us from getting where we want to in our spiritual lives is the law of sin. It is the law of flesh that resides within the heart, even as new creatures in Christ. And the, and the flesh is constantly warring against the spirit within us. It is constantly rebelling against the law of grace that rules as king in our hearts. It's not so much a, when the language talks about this fight between the spirit and flesh in the heart, it's not really an equal battle. It's really the, the grace that is the ruler of our hearts and the sin principle is rebelling against that rule in our hearts. And so Galatians 5.17 says it like this, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you do not, you do, not do the things that you want to do. And again, the opposition is more of an inferior rebelling against a superior. And so you have your new desires as new believers, as new creatures in Christ, but your flesh, the law of sin in your heart, it also has its own desires for evil. In fact, that is what the flesh is, that is within your heart, that is what it's always doing. The flesh is always lusting. The flesh is always desiring evil. Like fire always burns, the, the flesh always lusts. It's always tempting you to lust. It's always desiring evil. John Owen says this about the flesh or the law of sin. The law of sin consists 
in its habitual propensity unto evil. He says, this is the, the work of the law of sin. It is restlessly and continually raising up and proposing various forms and appearances of evil in this or that kind, indeed in, in, in every kind that the nature of man is capable to exercise corruption in. The lusts of the flesh are always lusting. The lust of our flesh, the, the, the flesh is always desiring what is evil, and it is always not wanting to do what is good. Yesterday, as I had this text in my mind, I was driving in my car, and uh, I have a friend, not, not, in anywhere, not in this church, and he did something so petty to me, and I was kind of like, kind of just kind of brooding in my heart, and just kind of thinking negative thoughts about him, and, and I'm thinking, man, that's so petty. I, I need to forgive him. I, I know what I need to do. I need to be gracious. I need to be merciful. But see, my flesh wanted to, to, to not obey that command to evil. See, James says that your temptations to do evil and your temptations to refuse to do good, it comes from this, this, these evil desires of this law of sin that is still part of us. Temptation to evil comes from the, the lust of our flesh, the lust of this sin principle still residing within our hearts. And Jen, James then says in verse 15 that when the law of sin within our hearts, as soon as it, as soon as lust has conceived, James says in verse 15, it has given birth to sin. As soon as there is the desire, as soon as there is any attraction, even a little bit, to any sort of evil, as soon as the, 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 the minutest, slightest attraction to evil has been conceived, you have sinned. You have given birth to sin. And if you let that sin grow and mature, and if you don't do anything about it, if you never repent of your sin, if you keep blaming God for your rebellion, if it never stops, James says it brings forth eternal death. He calls that, that, that dynamic of sin never stopping, never turning around, never dying. He, call, he describes that as sin fully matured in verse 15. For a believer, sin never fully matures, to use James's language. Sooner or later, for a believer, the law of grace says that's enough. That's enough. Paul says it like this in Romans 6. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. And So let's say, for example, you're in a trial. You refuse to consider it all joy. You turn away from Christ for a bit. You turn away from the church or from fellowship or from prayer and from Bible. And what is the net result? Obviously, no joy. But what else happens is that the lust of your flesh, it is inflamed. It goes into hyperdrive because there is no counter power. There is no counter spiritual good that is acting against the lust of the flesh. And so now you have, you have all these temptations. And you have, instead of finding joy in Christ, there's this temptation to, to find pleasure in sin. It might be sexual sin. 
could be another kind of sin. And so let's say it's a, a sexual sin. So there's the temptation to find pleasure in sexual transgression, and it's mul being multiplied by a thousand because you're blaming God. You're blaming God for your trials. And you're blaming God for these temptations. And so now it's just the sinful desire is birth, and then it grows into action. You, you go on places on the internet where you shouldn't go, and then you're flirting with somebody who is not your wife or your husband, and then it, let's say it goes to adultery. Sin is growing unabated at this point. It is reaching maturity at this point. And if that sin is never repented of, or, or that adultery never stops, an obvious divorce ensues, and you, and you go on your life lit, never repenting when you die and go to hell, uh, James says that is when sin has matured, and that is when it brings forth eternal death. And so James is saying, believer, Christian, in trials, never get on that road. Don't ever take that bus ride, because that bus is going to hell. So James now moves on in verses 16 through 18 to state the positive side of the case. He says in trials, make sure you don't have the wrong view of God. If you do that, you'll never turn to him for grace in your trials. No, avoid the wrong view of God in trials, point number one. And, and point number two Embrace the right view of God in trials. Embrace the right view of God in trials. There are churches where it is the custom of the pastor to pause in his liturgy or sermon and say, God is good. To which the congregation will rep reply, all the time. And the pastor will say, all the time. And the congregation will answer, God is good. And that's what James does here in these last three verses. He tells us that in a trial, don't you ever, don't you ever forget that God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. And he says it like this in verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we, we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So we go from a, a false view of God in verses 13 through 15, blaming God for our temptation, not realizing the sin comes from our own heart, and we go from that view of God to a right view of God, starting in verse 16. And he says in verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. George, the car won't start because you can't drive. George, the, 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 the juice is coming out of the dumpling because you, you, you're eating like an animal. We're like that. He says that to us. Don't be deceived. Don't get angry at God for your trials. The trials are for your good. They're designed that you would be mature and, and whole. And then when you're in trials, don't be deceived and blame God for your bad decisions. You made them. God had nothing to do with that. 
Don't blame him for succumbing to the, to the desires of your own flesh. Because if you do that, you're deceiving yourself. You're the one who's evil. Get that straight. God is good. God is good all the time. And he begins in verse 17 by saying, listen, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above that there is evidence there is evidence of God's goodness. And the, and the phrase emphasizes the, 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 the action of God giving, giving every good thing given, and the gifts that he gives. See, every action of God's giving is good, and every result of God's giving is, is complete and good. They are comprehensively good. They are totally good. We just bought a house two years ago, our first house. Not the biggest house in the world, but we, we love it. We're thankful for it. But it didn't land on our laps right away. It, it took years of, of saving. My wife and I were, were saving our money. And then we had to, before that even, we had to get an education. And before that, God had to provide for our needs. And then even after we, were, we, we got out of school, he gave us a job. He gave us the wisdom to save the money. See, the whole process of God giving that house was good for us. And then he gave us this house, and it's, it's not the biggest house in the world, but it, it's, it's just perfect for our needs. We have two sons, and it's just, it's just right. It's exactly what we need. See, the action of God giving is good, and the gift given in the end is good. That's who God is. When God gave me my wife, he didn't just do it in one day. I didn't wake up one morning and then I was out in the church in my tuxedo. No, we became friends, we dated, and that whole process of God giving me my wife, that was good. And then God gave me my wife, and she's been the, the, the perfect partner that I need. A complete blessing for me. And see, the whole process from beginning to end, from A to Z, was good because it came from above. James says, every good gift comes from the Father of Lights. God is the Father of Lights. God is the Father of Lights. He created the sun and the, and the moon and the stars. He, uh, that means every sunrise, every, every sunset, every midnight starry sky, every, every shooting star, every full moon testifies like a church choir of the goodness of God. When God said, let there be light, there was light. And then Genesis 1-4 said what? And God saw that the light was good because the light came from the hand of a good God. 1 John 1-5 says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So God is good. God is good. And then James says, and God is good all the time. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Variation deals with the periodic movements of the sun and the moon and the planets and the stars. Shifting shadow has the idea of either the phases of the moon or the variation of the days and nights. And so we look at creation, and yes, we see the, the goodness of God in his handiwork, but unlike creation that is always changing, God doesn't. He never changes. See, in your best moments, in your, your, your best moments where, where, where you're praising God with the sincerity of heart and you're saying, yes, 
God, you are awesome. You are good. You see, that, that God, that kind of God, he never changes from the best day of your life to the worst day of your life. He's always the same. I remember read of a seminary professor who had recently contracted cancer and then immediately he would tell his friends and family, God hasn't changed. He's the same God. He's the same God. But if that doesn't convince you of God's goodness, James then gives us the greatest evidence of His goodness, and it's this, in verse 18, your salvation. Your salvation. In the exercise of His will, verse 18, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. To doubt the character of God in your trial is to doubt the Gospel. It is to doubt the cross. It is to doubt the resurrection. It is to, to, to think wrong thoughts about who God is in your trial is to attack your very own salvation. When God brought you forth by the word of the truth or by the Gospel, when He gave you new life by preaching the, the Gospel to you and you heard that Jesus died to pay the full penalty of your sins, when you heard and believed that He rose from the dead and in response to that good news you repented and trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of all your sins, that gift of salvation, James says, was the result, look at verse 18, it was the result of the exercise of His will. No one forced God to save you. You were a sinner dead in sin outside of Christ. God never owed you salvation. It was in the exercise of His will, uncompelled by anybody or any force. Nobody was strong enough to, to, to force God to save you. See, when He chose to save you, and when He did, it was out of pure goodness. Then Jim says in verse 18, so... He saved us by the word of the truth so that we, plural, we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James is not just talking about your own salvation. He is talking about the, the church's salvation. It's not just your salvation that is the evidence of God's goodness. It is the entire church's salvation that is the evidence of God, God's goodness. He says the church, corporate, is the first fruits of a, of a new creation. He says that if you ever doubt the goodness of God in your trial, think about the church. He says, taste that fruit. Tasting that fruit will convince you. That fruit is so good. The church is so good that when you taste it, you will know that God is good. This place here this morning is a foretaste of heaven. Every Sunday, the church is the, is the evidence of the goodness of God. When you're in a trial, and when you're struggling to believe in God's goodness, you, you have to force yourself to go to church, because that is, the, that is the greatest evidence of God's goodness right there. If your own salvation isn't enough for you to believe in God's goodness, then go to church and be reminded that He didn't just save you. Think about all the people who are here. Think about what they were like, what we were like before God saved us. I mean, I can imagine. That is not a pretty picture. 
Think of us now. That is the proof of God's goodness. And he says it's, it's the first fruits, that, that more is on the way. That we are the, we are the first fruits of a new creation where the, the harvest is culminating with Christ's return. And it will be on that day that no one will ever doubt the goodness of God again for eternity. In heaven forever, we will be praising God and we will be looking in all the, in the heavens and seeing every saint from every tribe, from every tongue, worshiping God and we will think to ourselves, God is good. God is good. An old music teacher was asked in a greeting, what's the good news today, teacher? And the old man, without saying a word, walked across the room. He picked up a tuning fork and he struck it. As the notes sounded, he said, that is A. It is A today. It was A, a 5,000 years ago. And it will be A 10,000 years from now. The teacher said, the soprano upstairs sings off key. Uh, the, he said, the tenor across the hall is, is out of tune. And then he, he struck the tuning, fork again, the tuning fork again and said, that is A, my friend, and that's the good news today. The good news that James wants us to know today and for eternity is this, that God is good all the time, and all the time, He is good. He has never had and will never have more goodness than he has now. And that will always be true for the rest of your life. God is infinitely good. He is unchangeably good. And James wants this simple truth of God's goodness set in the backdrop of our own sinfulness to be the anchor in the storm of our trials. And he wants this simple truth of God's goodness to help us become a wholehearted Christian.